0: It's so good to be together. Um, We're going to go straight to Scripture as we have um, some heavy things that Jesus is going to speak to us uh, from his word. And we're going to begin in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 19 to 24, and then we'll also go to 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 to 10. It says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money first timothy chapter 6 verse 6 to verse 10 it says but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take and we cannot take anything out of the world But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs." Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to gather under your lordship, and we pray that as we go to your word, that you would speak to us, that you would set us free as only your love can. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence here. You desire to reveal Jesus, to help us to see him in a new and living way, and we thank you, Father, for the grace that we can meet you in a grace that's boundless and endless. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. If you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, um, and if you weren't here last week and didn't get to hear the message, then um, today would be the first time that you're finding out about a brand new sermon series that we began last week. And the title of the sermon series is Marks of a Surrendered Life. And the idea of this sermon series is the fact that for all of us who want to follow Jesus, essentially what we're saying is that we are saying yes to a life of continuously yielding and surrendering to his lordship. Uh, I I stress continuously because this is not a one and done thing. Um, We constantly are yielding our hearts, surrendering our hearts to Jesus as The reality is that many things pull us and pull us away and seek to distract. And so our journey is one of often resetting and coming back and returning uh, because often our hearts wander. But the idea underneath this sermon series is the, the fact that for many, many times, for many of us, we may think we're actually surrendering our lives, but in fact, we may not be. We may... Because it may be the desire of our hearts, it may be the longing of our heart, but is it the actual reality of our lives? I remember years ago I was uh, meeting with this couple, and uh, they had just gotten married, and um, and it was a very stressful situation. Just in case some of you are wondering, like, is it anybody here? No, it's not nobody here. Mind your business. And so anyway, um, (laughs) but I was meeting with this couple, and they had just gotten married, and it was very stressful. They had a, a brand new baby in the midst of their marriage. Um, And just, life is stressful. And uh, it was a difficult marital conversation because she was saying, I don't think that he prioritizes us. He puts other things before us. And he was saying, no, all I do is live for this family and I work tirelessly for this family. And so um, I'm there awkwardly in the middle trying to just be a a non-anxious presence for these folks and help them to navigate this. I'm pretty good in those situations. God has given me grace. But then it came out that he bought a $7,000 pinball machine. And at that moment, I was like, I can't keep this poker face any longer. I was like, hey, bro, I know you feel like you put your family first, but this screams and says, maybe not. Um, We may feel like we're surrendering and yielding our lives to God, but it's helpful to have ways to actually identify beyond our feelings, beyond our potential to be self-deceived, to actually say, no, if these things are showing up in my life, if these markers are there, then I'm on the right track. That's the idea of this sermon series and... That's the idea of why, for a second week in a row, we are talking about money. And now, if you're visiting for the first time or visiting in a while, um, I probably could read your mind. It's like, of course, they're talking about money. Churches are so stereotypical. Um, They always talk about money. But before that train gets off the track real quick, let me just reset us and help us to realize that we're not talking about money here at Hope Astoria because Uh, we want your money, we need your money. Uh, No, actually, far from it. Um, We're talking about money because Jesus actually talked about money quite a bit. In fact, 15% of the sayings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, either talked about money directly or used money to communicate a spiritual principle. And so if today you're feeling like, man, two weeks in a row, money, If you were hanging around Jesus, there's a 15% chance that he would have been talking about money. And so before we get too offended, let's reset and realize that there's a reason why in the scriptures uh, there's approximately 500 verses on both prayer and faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money. More than 2,000 verses on money. And why is that? Because as we go to unpack these two verses that we're looking at, at the very cursory read of these verses it's clear that there is a spiritual force behind money. That money is not just currency. Money is not just uh, something that we use or spend or invest. There's actually a spiritual force behind money. And Jesus helps us to understand this. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want to know where your heart is, if you you struggle to locate what's most important to you, what is your greatest priority, what holds the majority of your affection and your delight, locate what you treasure and you'll find your heart. This is what Jesus is saying, that often the way that we can know what we actually prioritize and value and what actually holds our hearts if you follow the breadcrumbs of how we spend money and how we relate to money, we can locate where our heart is and what we treasure. So There's a reason why Jesus is speaking about money so much is because he's after our hearts. And he knows that if he can help us find where our hearts are, then we have an opportunity to bring our hearts to him. And so money is often one of the best locators of our hearts. It helps us to know where our hearts really are at. Here's another thing that money helps us to identify. Money helps us to identify if we're living for the here and now or if we're living for what's eternal. Because look at what Jesus said in verse 19 and onward. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So what Jesus is getting at here, he's not telling us that we shouldn't save money, that we shouldn't invest money, that we shouldn't plan for the future. What he's saying is that we should not put our ultimate hope in money, or things that we can store up in this life. If you, if you and I place our hope, our confidence in things that we can touch and feel and store and put away and amass value on, we're putting our confidence in things that ultimately what he's getting at is they're not permanent. They're not eternal. Raw, rust and moth can destroy it. Thieves can break in. He's saying, store up treasures in heaven. In other words, put your greatest confidence, let the value of your heart, the affections of your heart, be eternally driven, not driven by the here and now. What Jesus is helping us to realize is that how we spend our money, how we relate to it, helps us to identify, are we living for here and now alone? Or are we living for what is eternal? It's important to recognize what's driving us. Because if you and I are only living for here and now, then we are only living for things that are temporal. Things that come and go. Things that we can't take into the next life. Things that Jesus says are constantly depreciating in value in the grand scheme of things. Things that are not ultimately secure because thieves can break in and steal. Moth and rust can destroy. But then Jesus drops some truth that's so heavy to wrestle with that we need to pay attention to. In verse 24, with respect to money, he holds no punches back. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Did you realize that one of the greatest things that set up against our devotion to God is actually not another religion. It's not a false doctrine. It's not even like a vice or things that you, you and I may often associate. This is the biggest hindrance in my life. This is the greatest obstacle or the greatest detractor of my affection to God, the greatest burden that I have to overcome, my greatest spiritual enemy, Jesus is letting us know that for all of us, the greatest foe, the ongoing struggle, the thing that's trying to steal our affection away from God is money. That money is constantly on the other side of the battle line, and it's constantly trying to get us to do one thing, to serve it. Like this kind of brings us to a state of alert, realize that your paycheck is not just a paycheck. Your income is not just an income. Your possessions and the things that you're accruing are not just possessions and, and investments. Actually, they have a spiritual power to them, and their intention is to make you and I its slave. That's the agenda of money. The spiritual agenda of it. Money is not neutral. It has an agenda, and its agenda is for you and I to serve it. And Jesus says, He draws this line you and I cannot serve God and money. We will either hate the one or love the other. We'll we'll be devoted to the one or be devoted to the other. You cannot serve God and money. I'm struck by the stark line that Jesus draws in the sand there. You know, like he's not mincing words, he's giving no nuance there. He's saying, You cannot serve God and money. If you find yourself serving money, then you find yourself not serving God. And in order to serve God, you and I cannot serve money at the same time. There's no room for these dual masters. This is intense stuff that Jesus is calling us to wrestle with. That right now, for many of us, though our spiritual focus may be a habit you're trying to overcome or a relationship that's making you feel like it's struggling in your life and it kind of occupies a lot of time in your soul. Or maybe it's something that's uh, work-related or a family situation. Like we all have these things that we're like, this is the thing that's trying to detract and distract me and my biggest hurdle, my biggest enemy, spiritually speaking, that's trying to like withdraw me from Jesus. And Jesus is redirecting our eyes and saying, this is the main enemy. Now, for some of us, you're like, that don't make sense because Jesus, I don't have a lot of money. And so I'm good. You know, it's like, oh man, I pity those that have a lot of money. That's a lot of burden, but I'm good. I don't have a lot of money. So I must be really holy, really sanctified. This is written for other people. Actually, no, this is written for all of us because this does not discriminate against rich or poor. Rich or poor equally can be enslaved by money. It's just a different jail cell, but it's the same slave master. Money seeks to ensnare all of us. And so Jesus is raising our awareness because often we underestimate the spiritual power of money. This is where we go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, because here we get, we're given not only an alternate way of living life, uh, like, if Jesus is saying there's this path that money has for us that is constantly pulling us down this path, this path that says, serve me, let me be the Lord, let me drive you, let me fill you with fears when you don't have enough of me, let me, let, let me dictate what you do and what you don't do, let me be the driving force of your life. If this is the path that money seeks to pull us down, we get this other path that 1 Timothy 6 Uh, Verse 6 and onward tells us about with some additional warnings. Look at this other path that we're offered. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Let's stop right there. The other path that Jesus alone makes possible to us, the path that is resisting slavery to money, and money being the Lord of our life, is a path of godliness with contentment. Can you say that word with me, contentment? Let me invite you to say that one more time. That was a little faint. Contentment. Now, if I could tease you for a little bit, perhaps that word contentment came a little bit faint out of our mouths because we're like, I've heard of the legend of contentment, <laughs> the myth of contentment. I heard that there was once a people that were once content, but I've met none of them. It, it, the, the truth is, find a content person and you feel like you found a Yeti on a unicorn. You're like, "Where? how do you exist? I've never met you, especially in the city that we live in. That's constantly like like stuffing this message down our hearts as to why we shouldn't be content. Think about all the advertisements that you and I are constantly bombarded with. All of them are aimed to some degree to make us feel discontent, and then we buy. I, I, I don't have, I feel this emptiness. This ad is telling me this emptiness will go away if I acquire that thing. And before we know it, we're like, oh, three to five days, I'm going to be content. What happens after we get that thing? We're severely disappointed because we realize, this didn't really make me content. It was a band-aid at best. Jesus is offering us this path where money isn't lord over us, but actually godliness with contentment. Because we read there, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Could you imagine living life rather than living it like this, where you're clutching for dear life, holding on to things, to living life like this? It's like, whatever I have is not mine, I'm free where you could walk away from things, where you could give, where you're not anxiously holding things. This is what Jesus offers us. But he's offering us and he's doubling down and we're getting even more warnings to be, to be vigilant, to realize that money is spiritually powerful. It has an agenda. And the agenda is to ensnare us So verse 9 really hits home in that regard. It says, but to those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. There are no mincing words there. It's, It's being very plain, very clear that the desire to be rich Opens us up to all sorts of temptation, snares, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now here's the here's the the wrestling that I have with this. That it kind of really I had to pray through it and think and actually think of other scriptures, kind of like really get to what is this saying? It's not ultimately saying that being rich is absolutely categorically evil. Because this is, if if we can actually balance that, verse 10, it says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not saying money in and of itself. It's the love of it. And so when it's saying that when we desire to be rich, it causes us to fall into all these temptations... It's warning us against making being rich the sole aim of our lives. Where all we want to do is to be, we want to acquire more just for the sake of acquiring more. Or we want to acquire more for our own ends and means. We want more so that we could be more comfortable. We want more so that we could live a more plush life. We want more for all sorts of reasons that ultimately begin and end with us. Or, or other things, but never point to God. It made me think this verse of the several wealthy people that I've been able to meet over the years that love Jesus, that serve Jesus. And every single one of them, as I've kind of like intrigued and asked questions, they never set out to be rich. They actually just wanted to serve God fully with their life. Their gifts gave, gave them incredible success, worldly success. But the ones that really are like content are the ones that if you took away the money tomorrow, they'd be fine. Because the money is not their identity. They use the money for God's purposes, not for their own comfort and pleasure. We're we're being like warned and heightened, like realize that money is not this neutral thing. We have to proceed with caution because if we're, Messing with it with the wrong motives, it can hold a lot of heartache for us. So much so, verse 10, after it says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's old English for pains. It's, it, this is a staggering thing that God is making us aware of, that one of the greatest potential detractors from our faith is money. As I continue to do my best to try to parent our kids, my greatest desire for them is that when they are adults, that they would naturally, seamlessly want to follow Jesus. Do I want them to get into a great school? Absolutely. I'm pushing them academically as much as I can. Do I want them to have a good social life? Yes, we're doing the very best we can to make sure that they have good friends and and that they're good people and and that they they live kindly. Uh, All those things are important, but the number one thing for us is that they would serve Jesus. And I'm realizing more and more that probably the biggest threat to them not serving Jesus is not a false doctrine or another religion. It's money. That if my own kids could come to church faithfully, I could read the scriptures to them, pray with them, do all the things that we know to do, and at the end of all that, if their hearts remain bound to money, then they still have a chance of walking away from the faith. I'll take it a step further. As I continue to pastor our church, the more and more aware I'm becoming that one of the greatest spiritual threats to many of us is not the things that I would have naturally assumed at first glance and would have thought, man, it might be this vice or this temptation or this lifestyle choice or these kind of relationships or, or endlessly seeking pleasure or, or the things that our city and our world and our culture, yeah, those things are things to be aware of, but more and more realizing that one of the greatest things that has the potential to steer us away from the faith, from Jesus himself, is when money gets its hooks in us. When it makes us to not live contently This is a hard test to kind of apply to your heart. If your basic necessities being met don't allow you to feel content, then there's a good chance that money is lording over us. It's driving us because it has us down this awful path that tells us you're only going to be happy if you have more. So for us, the strong realization has been hitting me more and more that yes, we can faithfully attend church and we can be part of small groups and we could serve and we could go to retreats and we could do all these things that are meaningful and important and are super helpful. But if we do all of these things and never let Jesus free us from the slavery-inducing hold of money, then our hearts could still be bound, detached, disconnected from Jesus, even though the rest of our lives are trying to be intentional to be with him. Jesus needs to reach this area of our lives because if he doesn't, then there'll be this big chunk of our soul that will remain spiritually untransformed by his grace. You know, when... In our world, it's interesting uh, when we talk about topics and themes and uh, especially when we get into it from the political spectrum of things. um, uh, These are broad strokes generalizations, but if you look at those on the left politically, generally speaking, they'll say that they're okay with the government putting restrictions or telling us what to do with our money. And so tax us more, distribute it, spend it in these, they're okay with that, but those on the left say, you can never under any circumstances tell us what to do with our bodies, right? Those on the right would say the opposite. Those on the right would say, we're okay with laws putting restrictions on what we could do with our bodies, that like collectively we put ourselves under that, but we're never okay with you touching our money. Our money is ours. And what's interesting is that Jesus would say to both, he would say, I'm the Lord of your body and your money. If I'm Lord, then I'm Lord of all. Everything belongs to me. But until we actually do the, re- the wrestling that we need to do around this subject of money, you and I could find ourselves thinking that Jesus is Lord, yet a big aspect of our lives is withheld from him. And so that's why we have to have this money conversation with Jesus. We have to let him talk to us about how we relate to money, how we spend it, how it what role it plays in our life. Because until we do, very easily, other things can be Lord over our lives other than Jesus. I warned us that in the sermon series that we were going to have some difficult conversations, that Jesus was going to go into spaces in our life that was going to be uncomfortable And this becomes uncomfortable increasingly when Jesus enters into spaces in our lives that we historically have said, this is mine. I got this. This isn't yours. Now, we we typically don't say that out loud, but we live that way in so many ways. And so why we're creating space to reflect on what does a really surrender life do, looks like is because we ultimately want to answer the question who is really Lord of our lives? Who owns our hearts? Because Jesus, that's what he's after. He refuses to share our love, our devotion, our affection with anything else. He's jealously after our entire beings Because he knows that we will only be free as we surrender fully to him. Every other promise of freedom is a falsehood. Freedom is only found as we fully surrender to him. And so this is why Jesus spoke about money as much as he did because even though it might offend people, it might stir things up, he pushes through all of that and he knows, I want you to be free. And unless I talk about the things that really lord over you, you won't be free. But why are we talking about money during this season? We're talking about money during this season because this is one of the most spiritually charged seasons for us as a church. We're entering into a season, if you're new to our church, we're entering into a season that we call extending hope. And Extending Hope is a season in our church that we invite everyone to prayerfully consider giving above and beyond their normal giving to incredible missional causes. I'm going to talk more about that in a moment. But I want you to understand, there's there's intentionality why we're talking about money as a whole as we're entering into this season of Extending Hope. Because what we're trying to tap into is something that we see in scripture that God instituted for our good. He instituted something called the tithe. And what the tithe is, is this way of worship that he invited his people to honor him by declaring that 100% of what they own belonged to God, as they gave 10% of that as an act of worship. Through the tithe, God's people were invited to declare their 100% stewardship. I don't own any of this. This all belongs to you. And one of the ways I announce that, declare that, press that on my heart is by honoring you with 10%. And that 10% would go toward various needs of the community, of God's people, toward the temple, toward the priest, toward uh, various celebrations. That The 10% was used in so many ways that was beneficial for the community, but more than what it was used for, what it did to God's people was that it taught them, you and I cannot separate our possessions from our worship. The things that we steward, the things that God allows us to have in this life to manage cannot be separated from our heart to worship him. Look at what Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 and onward says. It's an amazing passage where God presents this very intriguing question. He's saying, "Will you rob me? Like think about that, the absurdity of that. No one can rob God. No one can actually corner God and say, "Give me all you got." You know like that, that, that doesn't happen. You cannot get a leg up on God. He, he's, it, it doesn't happen, but he's drawing our our minds to understand the concept of robbing, and he's translating it to saying, you actually rob me when you withhold your tithes and offerings. Now, this is uncomfortable to process. I have empathy for you, I do, because I wasn't always comfortable with these truths. God had to do a work in me. At the same token, if this is uncomfortable to process, I implore you, take this up with Jesus. Do some work with him. Have some robust conversations with them, because there's a reason why he's coming to us in this way, from his word, saying, you're robbing me when you withhold tithes and offerings. And then he tells him, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. See, the tithe taught them to never divorce their possessions from worship, and what it did, every time they tithed, it was a form of spiritual surgery. Every time they tithe, it was a reminder, what I own does not own me. What I have doesn't ultimately belong to me. I steward this to God. And it was an act of worship that deeply reset them said, we don't live for this temporal life. We live for what's eternal. We live not as if our jobs or our companies or the things that we create with our hands and our lives, those are the things that provide for us. No, we believe that God is our provider, and we proclaim that and stand in that as we practice tithing. And so every time they were practicing tithing in the Scriptures, It was building up a spiritual immunity against the spiritual power of money and possessions gripping them. I can tell you that in my own life, there's two days every month that are very spiritually charged, and that's the 15th and the 30th. When money hits the account, There's a conversation I have with God every single time. And it's a conversation that I remind myself from Scripture this doesn't belong to me. This isn't what provides for me. If I have a few jobs um, outside of pastoring our church, if all my jobs fired me, God would still provide for me. He chooses to provide through my jobs but he never said that would be the only way he would provide for me or provide for you. When I tithe, I remind myself, my income is not my God. He's my God. And, and I am more provided for with 90% of this by recognizing his lordship with 10 than trying to figure it out with 100% of it. There's this powerful spiritual moment I realized I grew up poor, public assistance. We were constantly afraid of not having enough, of one wrong move, we're kicked out. And to fast forward, to be able to, I have four kids, to provide for them, a life that was never provided for me, and to live with God at the center of our lives is one of the great privileges of my life. Every year, when, at, when the year ends and we get our giving statement, we sit down as a family and I sit with my kids and I show them, hey, this is what our family gave. This is what we, this, this communicates what we value, what we honor, what's most important to us. And then I use it as a dad teachable moment and say, this is why you couldn't get everything you wanted. Because if you got everything you wanted, then we would not be living for eternity. This is why we don't have multiple vacations and trips, and this is is why we're not trying to keep up with everything that's happening around us, because we're living for something far greater. And it's a powerful moment when they get to ask, like, wait a second, our money was connected to missionaries, to starting churches, to helping nonprofits? It's a really incredible thing that happens spiritually when we get to gather around what prioritizes our lives. And we could look at something very concretely and say, though imperfectly, we can say we're really trying to live with Jesus at the center of our lives. Not just words, but actually with intention, with action. Giving does that to us. It cuts our hearts every time. It resets us every time. It pushes back against the force of of money gripping us and being Lord over us every single time. And so one of the reasons why we choose to talk about money as a whole, giving as a whole, tithing, during Extending Hope is because the bigger goal during this season is more than just the partners we're trying to come alongside and help them do even greater work is more than just meeting a goal. It's more than just trying to get us to live generously. The bigger goal spiritually is for us to be free from the lordship of money. And there's no other way to experience that than by us living with this kind of open-handed posture. And one of the incredible tools that God's given us is the practice of tithing that pushes back the encroachment, this slavery, the powerful force of of money that tries to make us its servant. So this is why we talk about money, giving as a whole during this season, because we have a bigger goal than just beyond extending hope. But also, let me talk about extending hope for a moment, because we're so excited. At this time... um, You're going to receive a small printout, if you didn't uh, grab it on your way in, um, that gives some details about the incredible partnerships that we're going to have this year, and I just want to take a moment to talk about that. We're so excited. Um, You know, this season of our year, just so you know, uh, is one of the most spiritually charged seasons in our entire year because... During this time of year, we invite every single person to talk to God about their money. And there's probably no greater conversation that you and I could have that facilitates, catalyzes spiritual transformation than this one. And so uh, we, we experience as pastors and leaders the greatest amount of spiritual warfare during this time, the greatest resistance, the craziest things happen that we know are not just, you know, fluke things. We, re- we experience spiritual resistance during this time because the spiritual grip of money doesn't want to let you and I go. But during this time, as we begin to talk to God about our money, there's something powerful that's on the horizon a freedom that only Jesus could bring, could be possible for us. Because every time we give, we experience a form of spiritual surgery. And every year during Extending Hope, our church undergoes spiritual surgery as we begin to talk to God about our money. If you've been here before, you know we've been consistent in this regard. We do not prescribe a certain amount. We don't say, hey, if we had 1,000 people give this amount or 100 people. We don't try to prescribe anything. What we All we ask you to do is talk to God about your money and we ask you to talk to God about extending hope, and if he tells you not to give, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what we're really after. You and I being the type of people that Jesus can be Lord over our money, that he can tell us what he wants us to do. And if that happens, whether you're part of extending hope or not, you're part of a revolution that's changing the world. And so as we invite you to pray about Extending Hope, this is, it's open handed. We want you to talk to God about your money and see if he's inviting you to be a part of it. What is Extending Hope about this year? From now through Saturday, December 9th, we're inviting everyone to prayerfully consider giving above and beyond your normal giving. And this year, our prayerful goal is to raise $80,000. 100% of these monies Go to our partners. It's one of the joys I have about talking about money during this time of year or extending hope is because I know what exists in people's minds. Like, oh, you as the pastor, you're talking about money. There's a self-interest. Not at all. If you, if any of you gave like million a million dollars today, my income wouldn't change. Uh, this money doesn't belong to me. It's, it's, it belongs to the church. We steward it for the purposes of God. And so there's no agenda here. But just in case you don't believe that, 100% of this all goes out. And so you can go verify with the partners that we partner with, they get the checks and they get to do incredibly more good work that blesses so many people. Who are the partners that we're giving to? We're giving this year to Do For One, a long-standing partner that's doing incredible work as they build relationships and support for those with developmental disabilities. Do For One, uh, Andrew Oliver is such a humble guy, But if you get to talk with them, you'll hear that Do For One is actually changing the landscape of our city. It's taking root throughout New York City. And not only so, Andrew Oliver has been getting requests from national organizations and international organizations to help them build out similar structures in various parts of the country and different parts of the world. It's incredible what they're doing. Legal outreach, this incredible facility that we meet in, is actually, uh, it's home to an incredible nonprofit that helps enable students from underserved communities to pursue higher education. And their track record for over 30 years is astounding. They've helped kids get into some of the best schools in the country. Um, it, it's an incredible organization. Every month that we pay rent to use this facility, does not feel like we're paying a bill. It's incredibly joyous. So on top of that, we not only stock them with volunteers throughout the year at various points, but we also love to include them in this year-end offering. We have missionaries that we've been supporting for many, many years, um, and they're doing incredible work, particularly in Indonesia. It's a hard country to do gospel work in, and it's really our privilege to continue to uphold their hands as they continue to share the gospel with people in that part of the world. Embracing Hope, you heard about Embracing Hope recently. We had the joy of welcoming um, some folks from the organization. If you recall, they're providing food, medical care, housing support, and so much more to refugees and survivors of war in Ethiopia. Seek Just Action, that's an initiative that was birthed out of our Hope Justice team, and they're partnering with local nonprofits to serve our community, and some of these nonprofits are Our Children, that's an organization that comes alongside families that just experienced the traumatic events of a family member, a parent in particular, being incarcerated. Um, And it focuses on the hours right after that. How can they come alongside children and families in that space? Um, Sienna. it's an organization that works with uh, immigrant population, serving them in their various needs, and the Ravenswood Community Center Vineyard Manhattan. It's a sister church, part of our denomination. We supported them last year and we're continuing to support them this year as they're trying to uh, work toward really being a sustainable church in the heart of Manhattan. Um, That's a hard task. Uh, One of my other jobs, I work with church planters across the city. I can tell you planting in Manhattan is a different animal. It needs different kind of support, different, different kind of love, and different kind of financial resources. And so They're heading toward being the sustainable congregation, and we're just trying to add more resources toward that end. Youth for Christ, you've heard about them before in years past. They do an amazing job at coming alongside youth that were in the juvenile justice system, and as they're exiting out of this system, often they will go right back into it if they don't find mentors, support, and in particular, people that can help them develop a career, jobs, and Youth for Christ in New York City is doing just that. They've been doing amazing things, starting businesses, actually, so that youth can be a part of it. Um, Incredible work. And then last but not least, a new partner this year is an organization called Care Portal. Care Portal enables churches like ours to serve families that are at risk in the foster care crisis. If you didn't know, the foster care crisis is ground zero for so much brokenness in our world. You could trace back homelessness, incarceration, teenage pregnancy, so many things back to the foster care crisis. And in particular, in Queens, it's magnified even more because so many kids that are in the foster care space have family members that are in Rikers Island, a local jail. And so it's a death loop that's here and Care Portal was helping churches like ours enter into that space and disrupt that cycle. I could talk on and on about these organizations that we're so privileged to support and be a part of, but again, I wanna remind us, we're, we're even though we're so joyous and expectant, we're believing that we're gonna see that $80,000 goal met, and if years past continue to be the trend, We're looking forward to celebrating exceeding that goal as has happened every single year that we've done this even though we've increased the amount every single year but even bigger than that what's happening over these next few weeks is so spiritually transformative because we are entering into one of the most powerful conversations we could have where we get to talk to God about our money we invite him to talk to us about one of the most spiritually potent things in our lives. And I need you to know, this is a conversation we're all having. Because even though I've been serving God for many years, as I approach this year of Extending Hope, the Lord's putting his finger on my heart and making me realize there's deeper surgery he wants to do in my heart with respect to money. We're all going to undergo this powerful transformation if we really come to Jesus with hands open and say, Lord, speak to me, guide me, direct me, free me from the lordship of money. And so, as we close this time, I can't think of a better way to root our hearts into the things that we've been talking about than to come to the Lord's table. During this time, I could invite us to stand we're going to receive communion together and hopefully when you came in you saw at the table downstairs or up here that there was a communion cup if you have not received one if you didn't grab one no worries if you could just raise your hand and Amy the glorious Amy who we love she's going to come by and give you a communion cup at this time thank you Amy so much Um, Again, if you haven't received it, just wave your hand really high so that Amy could see it. Um, As we prepare to receive communion, let's prepare to receive the bread at this time. 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verse 23 and onward, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you for your invitation for us to remember you to remind ourselves of what you've done which informs us that spiritually speaking we often forget we have amnesia with respect to what you've done and we need to be reminded over and over again and thank you that we can remember that your body was broken for us 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You were broken, that we might be made whole. We thank you, Lord. Let's receive the bread at this time.